Welcome back to the podcast. This is Shark, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And we are continuing our adventure today in Road to Emmaus Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament series. We are in session eight. If you'd like to catch up on all the previous episodes and you're just joining us, we have all of those are in our podcast list. We also have a course page and a YouTube playlist, which I hope at this point will be updated by the time this is published. Note to self. <laughs> Anyways, uh, as always, this uh, program is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support this program and keep it free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael in the Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, Session 8. Hello and welcome to Evidence for Faith. Your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining us today. And as we're continuing our series that we're doing on the road to Emmaus, as I call this, and the road to Emmaus, these are the Messianic prophecies of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Messianic prophecies. The Old Testament or the Old Covenant that a lot of people... Um, it's, it's something that Christians many times sort of put down. Matter of fact, I remember having a discussion uh, some years ago with a pastor who said um, uh, I was asked to speak to his group. And when I did, I, I chose a passage out of Leviticus. And he sort of like, why are you using Leviticus? He says, we're Christians. We should only study the new covenant. And the old covenant is meaningless to us. It has nothing to do with this. And I said, it's the foundation. Everything is built upon this. And yeah, true. We have a new covenant today, the New Testament. But oh my gosh, there's so much still in the Old Testament we need to know. And it still needs to be studied. And as we've been looking at, we've just got done doing in the previous lesson, Messianic prophecies dealing with the the uh, uh, sacrifices and the offerings. Well, today we're going to look at a different one as we go through here, still in in the book of Leviticus, and which, as I said, this is a handbook for the priests and and uh, the Levites. But there is so much in here that pertains to us now. <laughs> I know a lot of people, if if you are sitting down and you hear the speaker going to say, well, today's lesson is out of Leviticus, you just about put half the people to sleep just by saying that, uh, which is unfortunate because Leviticus is so cool. As we saw with the, the offerings and stuff, it's, it's an amazing book because these offerings pertain to the Messiah and there's messianic aspects of each one. Well, we're going to see the same thing with the holidays, with the feasts that we see in here. So it's, it's another fascinating set of messianic prophecies that are in the book of Leviticus. Now, I will tell you right away that um, as we're going, started with Genesis, then we did Exodus, we're in Leviticus. Now, the feasts that we're going to be talking about today are also covered in some cases in the book of Numbers and again in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm not going to read those passages as we do this series. Um, it would just take so much time just sitting and reading all of these things. And a lot of times they're just uh, somewhat saying the same thing, only as you get uh, into like Deuteronomy and stuff, they might give you more details about it. But I just want to point out, and we're going to cover it just briefly, the different holidays um, or feasts that the Lord gave the Israelites to observe yearly. Because you're going to see there's a messianic aspect to each one of these that almost will just make your mind explode. This this is so cool the way this is set up. I mean, most Christians don't even know of all of the dif different holidays. I've, I have found, out, found that out by teaching youth groups and speaking to college groups. A lot of people, they, they don't know what the holidays are that the Hebrew nation was to celebrate. And like Orthodox Jews still to this day celebrate. But the thing is, they it is something we should know. This is really important stuff um, to see how this these feasts were done and how they pertain to the Messiah. Because each feast corresponds to a specific event dealing with the Messiah. And they're first described, as we're doing this, in the book of Leviticus. And like I say, you can go into Numbers and Deuteronomy. You can, if you got a, a cross-reference Bible, you can easily pull those up. Or you can always contact us on our website, and I can tell you the different sites for each one of the, the holidays in the other books. But we're just basically going to cover these, these in this order. Now, before I get started going into the number system and going through this, 
there's something that we have to understand that's very, very important about these feasts and holidays that the Hebrew nation um, celebrated. You see, the Hebrew people had two calendars that they kept. Yeah, we, we have one. They had two. And one was a spiritual calendar that began with the month of Nisan, which is usually our April, uh, March, April time period in there. Um, so that would be the beginning of the spiritual year. But then there was a civil calendar that they had also, which began with the month of uh, Tishri, which is generally our September, maybe into October, into that range. Now, why these holidays floated around, like I'm giving you, for instance, Nisan, the, the spiritual calendar, because that's the one we're going to focus on. Why do I cover it in two months? It's because it starts with Passover, and Passover floats around. And no doubt you've all realized Easter is not a standard day on our calendar. Not like we celebrate, say, Christmas or Fourth of July or um, you know some other specific holiday. There was a method to figuring out Passover. Passover, which starts the spiritual calendar, um, takes place. The way Passover was to, was determined was it was the first full moon after the spring equinox. Now our Easter follows that. And so our Easter follows the first full moon after the spring equinox. Now, the spring equinox, of course, occurs on our calendar in March, usually around the 20, 21st, um, somewhere right around in that era. Around March 21st begins it, and then it'd be the first full moon. After that, that's going to be Passover. So you see it floats around. That's why Easter can be in mid um, April, or it can be at the latter part of March. It, it moves around and it makes it a little difficult for us to find that. And um, every year, because we do a marine biology trip um, at Easter time, I've been doing these for 30 something years. We're taking applications right now for the next trip. Um, and you can go to our website and um, see the information and even a video on that. But how many times I have been asked, why don't I just make the trip a standard um, date. Well, back um, when, when the earth was cooling and I was in high school, most public schools always followed Easter, and we always had an Easter break. We usually had Good Friday off, and then we had the week after Easter, and that's how it was. Even when I began teaching, it was still like that back in the 70s, and through the 80s and the 90s, it pretty much was like that. But in the last two decades, uh, the public school system has really gotten far away from following Easter. And so now most schools don't have an Easter break. They have a spring break or a winter break, as some of them do. They'll take a break maybe in February or they'll do one in the beginning of March and stuff. So they, don't, they do not follow the Easter holiday anymore because Easter floats all over the place. And sometimes if Easter is late and you have your spring break after that, and I know this from when I taught school, um, after your spring break, there's, in some cases, just a couple of weeks left of the school year. So many schools today place it much earlier in between January and somewhere towards the, the beginning of May. They sort of smack it right in the middle there. But that's why it's like that. And the reason Easter floats around, now you know the answer, has to do with when is the first full moon after the spring equinox. So, that's how these, these holidays that the Jews are following, um, and we're going to go through this, we're going to be going through their, their spiritual or the religious calendar, as some may call it, and we're going to see, starting with the first one, um, which is going to be Passover, these messianic prophecies are found in each one of these holidays that we go through here. And it's absolutely interesting to see. I mean, it is so cool to see how these holidays are fulfilled by the Messiah. So do you understand? When the Jews were celebrating holidays, they were celebrating an event of what the Messiah would do. How cool is that? So 
We begin in the spring because that's when the Hebrew spiritual or religious calendar begins. And and Leviticus chapter 23 is where we're going to start this. So if you're following with your Bibles, again, we're using primarily the English Standard Version, a word-for-word translation. And when you get to chapter 23, you'll see um, this is where these feasts all begin. And Moses is getting this directly from the Lord, um, and then he gives it to the people of Israel. Matter of fact, it says in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 4, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. Now, that's interesting because it says the time appointed. That's what the actual definition of the Hebrew word feast means. The Hebrew word is moed, which means not feast. You're not sitting down to a meal. It means appointed time. So these are the appointed times. And it's a definition. um, From this definition, we can gather that there are intended times to meet together and between God and man. And that's what these things were. Now, also, just before we get started here, I have uh, one more thing I need to make sure you understand before we get going. As you study these feasts or appointed times, six things should become obvious as you study this. First of all, number one, they relate to Israel's spring and fall agricultural seasons. That's how these holidays sort of go, uh, starting in the spring and going through the fall, and it has to do with the agriculture. Why the agriculture? The Israelites, the Holy Land, was basically an agricultural society. They um, primarily grew crops, and they herded sheep. That's what they did. And even to this day, uh, when we take trips to Israel, and by the way, when Israel opens its borders again, I'm hoping to do another trip. Um, like to do a couple more trips as we keep going here in our ministry, Evidence for Faith. Just watch our website, find out about when these things will be available. And I love to take people, uh, particularly in the past, I've taken people more in the springtime and it's the height of some of the um, some of the crops. They have two growing agricultural seasons in Israel, and and today when we're when we would go in the spring, um, I mean you, they, they grow everything there, and we would go at the 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 highest point of cherry season um, and watermelon. Oh my gosh, best watermelon I ever had in my life. Um, love to go there and just eat tons of watermelon. But Israel, they grow everything toward the, towards the north and in Galilee and um, north of Jerusalem. You can grow almost anything. Uh, bananas, pineapple, grapes, of course, because they're mentioned throughout the Bible. Olives are mentioned throughout the Bible. But yeah, uh, there's so many different fruits and, and, and plants that grow there. And so it's an agricultural paradise. And Israel is extremely agricultural to this day. And so it was based upon their calendar, the spiritual calendar and stuff was based upon the spring and the fall agricultural seasons. That's the first thing. Second, um, that point that you need to know, they are based upon, as I said, this Hebrew lunar calendar. It doesn't follow ours. They have their own calendar. It's lunar based. And so because of that, seven times every 19 years, they would add an extra month to it. Where we, in our calendar, you know, we go uh, every four years, we have a leap year where we add another day. Well, the Jews did it differently under God's direction. You follow the moon for this. So their calendar is based on a lunar system. The third point, each event, as I said, you're going to see has a specific dealing with the ministry of the Messiah. It's going to reveal something specific about his redemptive career. Fourth thing, all these appointed times, all these appointed times, these feasts were fulfilled or, as you're going to see, some of them have not been fulfilled yet because they have to do with the second coming. And the last days of the last days, or what a lot of people call end time prophecies or eschatology. So some of these feasts actually deal with that. So they have not occurred yet. We are all waiting, both the Jews and us, we're waiting for the Messiah to fulfill these. And then the fifth point I want to make to you, Gentiles were allowed to participate in these. Yes, they were allowed to participate in these feasts of the Lord. So with that, those little points there, those five points. Now, um, let's get into 
are actual prophecies. Now, as we've been following, if you've uh, been um, going through our lessons with us, you'll notice I always give you a numerical number of what we're doing, what one we're on numerically, and I'll give you a title to it, and then often the passage. So this is number 25. We're on the 25th major prophecy, because there's a lot of minor ones too that we're skipping over. These are the major prophecies that we're doing, and we're at number 25, and just entitle this Passover. That's simple, Passover. And as we just continue where we were at in Leviticus 23, um, in verse 5, it says, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Now, you can also read in Numbers 28, 16 through 25, and you can read Deuteronomy chapter 16. It goes into more details about this. But uh, I'm just going to summarize the first Passover for you because it's an important one because um, this holiday is all based upon what took place in the book of Exodus with the first Passover. If you'll recall, the Passover was the final plague to hit Egypt. And if you study the plagues carefully, you might notice, and this is a great Bible study to do too, um, the plagues, each one of the plagues that hit the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. Each one of those plagues, if you did not know this, is directed specifically in an Egyptian god, an idol, um, one of their false gods. Every single one of those, from the first plague to the last, they worshiped the Nile River. The first plague was the Nile River turning to blood. They worshiped the Nile as a god, and God smote that god. And um, the true God reigns out over all these false gods. And it kept going to finally the last plague, which was the Passover. And that one, of course, was death. And Pharaoh was actually um, also one of the gods uh, of the Egyptians. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god, and he had the, the power of life and death. And God takes, obviously, him and kills his, his firstborn son. Um, so, because Pharaoh was worshipped as a god also. In a single word, this holiday alone can instead of calling it Passover, could easily have been called redemption. All the sacrificed lambs that the Jews slain in Egypt on that first Passover night was pointing to the one true lamb of God. And as John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, the true lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he tells his disciples, look, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, referring to Passover and having to do with this Passover lamb. Now, Passovers have been taking place uh, for 35 centuries. I mean, this goes back to along, you know, way back into Egypt, ancient Egypt at the time of Moses. And in Exodus chapter 12, if you wanted to look and read it, you can read it. It starts in verse 3 and goes through 49. Moses describes what the ceremony, how they were going to do it. But just to give you a summary, as I said, I'll give you a summary of it because it's important to know. First of all, they are to select a year-old lamb that is in the prime of its life. You don't take some sickly one. You don't take some um, some neighbors. Um, you've got to purchase or you have your own lab. You, you have to provide the lamb, and it's got to be a perfect specimen, a year-old in the prime of its life. That's when you take it. And that's signifying, remember, you're looking for, for um symbolism having to do with Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus was 30 years old when he started his ministry. So he's in the prime of his life at that point too. And they are to remove it from the herd. They take it back in Egypt. They would take that, that lamb, that year old lamb, and they would take it and remove it from the herd on the 10th day of Nisan. So this is before Passover. They take it and they're going to keep it for four days. And when they are doing this, there's two reasons basically that um, for taking this thing out of the herd and keeping it with your family. Uh, one, it's you're now quarantining it, where you get a good chance, a uh, good time period, four days here, to make sure that you've got an acceptable lamb. And so that's a main thing. But it doesn't really take 14 days to see the specimen, how healthy it is. There was another reason that's very obvious to this, because it provides, like I say, an exam, uh, time to examine the lamb, but it allowed the family to have some personal attachment to it. Did you ever have, or maybe it was you yourself, uh, one of your children or you yourself bring home a stray dog or cat or something else that you wanted to make a pet? that you took something like that? I, I remember back 
when I was in elementary school, um, I was out fishing with my dad one day and he caught a catfish on, um, the fish were biting great. And I remember him catching um, the last catfish we'd run out of bait and he had used his cigar. And he took the butt of his cigar, put it on the hook, weighted it down, threw it out there, and he actually caught a catfish, pulled up out of the water. Here's the cigar. <laughs> I'm not making this up. He had a catfish um, with a cigar sticking out of his mouth. And I remember it, it just made such an impression on me that that was so funny. Actually, he caught a couple off that before the cigars totally just disintegrated. But the last, the last one he caught with the cigar... Um, we kept and we started to throw. We didn't, after we caught so many, dad said, I don't want to take all these home and clean them. Um, I just don't want to do it. Let's let them, let's just let all the catfish, because that's pretty much what we all caught. And we had caught a, a number of catfish. And normally my dad was a big catfish eater. Uh, you know, it's an unclean fish, but he, he loved fried catfish. And for some odd reason, I don't recall why, because I was very young, he decided not to, to keep them. So um, we had him on the stringer, and he's letting them all off. But that one, I'm still holding this one, and I guess he was tired, just didn't want to go home and clean fish. But I said, Dad, can I take it home? And he goes, what? And I said, we had a ditch along the side of our house, um, a ditch where collected rainwater and water from the roads and stuff, and almost always had water in it. And I said, Dad, can, can I have this catfish? I want to bring it home as a pet. And uh, for some weird reason, I have no idea, he he acquiesced my request and, and he did it. He, he allowed me to keep this thing. And so I brought home a catfish. Other people bring home a dog. Other people bring home a cat. I've even known some people to br uh, find a rabbit or a squirrel. No, I bring, or a turtle. No, what do I bring? I bring a catfish. And, you know, you can't really cuddle with a catfish too much. You get finned. But that's what it was. And it became, I got sort of personally attached to this catfish. Maybe that's why I started liking marine biology. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> But I just really, um, I named it um, and kept it in the ditch, and I would go out there and feed it worms. And I was just sort of nuts about this thing. So I had a catfish, and, and the other kids in the neighborhood would come over and, and view my pet catfish. So you see what I'm, the point I'm making here? By taking the lamb and bringing it into your house, um, you're getting some personal attachment. As I said, I got personally attached to a catfish. Might explain a lot to those of you who know me well. Um, maybe some of the things about me that I would get so personally attached to a catfish. I, I don't know. But anyway, it, it, the lamb becomes almost like a pet in that short period of time. In other words, it creates the feelings that when you sacrifice this, you're sacrificing um, something that's close to the family. And it's supposed to be that way. It was an innocent animal. It had done nothing wrong. This lamb was not guilty of anything. It's a guiltless lamb. Yet it's been chosen to die. And now the family has got some attachment to it. Now, during the afternoon on the 14th day of Nisan, it's killed. They would sacrifice the lamb. The thing is, this is done publicly, not in secret. It was done publicly, just like, again, are you seeing how Jesus fulfills some of this? He was crucified publicly right along the side of a road um, outside the, um, uh, the gate, uh, one of the gates of the city. So it's killed publicly. In later times, the priest would conduct the service, and when he would do this, as the priest kills the lamb, he would say, during the ceremony of doing it, it is finished. When he kills the lamb, that's what he says. It is finished. Now again, what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. And then he bowed his head and he died. I mean, you see the similarity here. The symbolism is so strong. It's more than a coincidence how? Jesus cried the same words, and that's in John 19.30. You can look it up, but it, he actually says it is finished as he's dying. Do you catch this? As Jesus is dying on the cross on this day before Passover, because Passover starts in the evening at twilight, what's going on is Jesus is dying at the same time the lambs are being sacrificed. Jesus dies publicly at the same time the lambs are dying publicly. The priest in the temple is saying, it's finished. Jesus says, it is finished. 
How cool is that? Now the blood would be collected and then it would be used. Um, they would, uh, back on the first Passover, they would collect the blood, they would kill the lamb, take the blood, put it in a bowl, and they took a hyssop branch. And they took the hyssop branch, this is part of Passover, and they would dip the hyssop branch into the bowl of the blood collected from the lamb, and they would sprinkle it on the doorpost, on both sides and at the top. And they would sprinkle this using the hyssop. And it's interesting to note that God required hyssop for this. Hyssop is an important plant. It grows wild all through the Holy Land. When we go there, we see it frequently. Um, I pointed out on some of our tours because it just grows so abundantly. And there's actually, and today, hyssop is one of the essential oils a lot of people like to use for so many things medicinally. But hyssop was also, uh, could be used sort of like as a soap product if you take wild hyssop and stuff. But hyssop is a short shrubby little plant. It's not a very tall plant. It's not a big tree, no. Um, and so they would take this hyssop, short little branches. You could easily go up to your doorpost, dip it in blood, and just splash it along the sides. But hyssop has to do with cleansing, because this whole thing is to be passed over um, for redemption. And so it's being passed over. And the hyssop branch was used by this. But did you catch this? Now, that was in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. It specifically calls for hyssop. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. Go back to Jesus at the crucifixion. Remember Jesus saying, I thirst? In John chapter 19, um, around verse 28, 29, we see this. He thirsts. A person goes over, grabs a sponge, um, fills it um, with sour wine, and puts it on what? A hyssop branch and puts it up to Jesus' lips. Hyssop, was it the first Passover? Hyssop as at the crucifixion also. It is used. It was symbolic for cleansing. I mean, it could be used as a soap, but it was symbolic of spiritual cleansing, and it's used at the cross. And by the way, just a little side note about hyssop. As I said, it's a small branching plant. We often see images of Jesus being crucified on a very, very tall cross, way up high in some cases, and in some movies, it's like 50 or 75 feet high. Some paintings you see, um, Jesus is on a very, very high cross and stuff. Well, we know that's not true, because if a guy is going to stand there and take a sponge, put it on the branch of the shrubby little plant, and put it up to Jesus's lips, Jesus has to be on a short cross. Isn't that interesting? And that's true. Matter of fact, maybe we'll do a series. Um, I have a, a series I would I speak frequently on the crucifixion of Jesus. I call it the price of love. But the, the actual crucifixion and what takes place both historically uh, and physiologically and anatomically when a person is crucified Roman style uh, from the first century as Jesus was. And um, hyssop um, was um, something that shows us that he was on a short cross. Jesus was crucified on a short cross. No question about it, because hyssop is a short, scrubby little plant. Mm -hmm. So, very interesting about that. Now, as stated, this Passover ceremony, the first one took place about 35 centuries ago. But how it is, as I've shown you now, how it pertains to the crucifixion, how Jesus fulfills this, is just absolutely mind-boggling. Every Easter, I think about this in particular, and I, I, I think about how the crucifixion was done, what Jesus was as the Lamb of God, um, taking away the sins of the world, his blood being shed, and how even hyssop was being used for this. It's just remarkable how all this fits together. And as a matter of fact, this is when the new covenant starts, because Jesus, at the Last Supper, just hours before his crucifixion, he uh, is doing the Lord's Supper. They're having the Lord's Supper in the upper room, and then the crucifixion takes place. And it's here that Jesus starts, and he says this is the new covenant. Again, fulfilling a prophecy, which we'll see out of the book of Jeremiah. But that's number 25. That was Passover. That takes us to number 26. 26. This one is called, this holiday is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is recorded in Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to read chapter, or chapter 23, verses 6, 7, and 8 to get an idea of what's going on here. Now, this happens, by the way, right after Passover. You're going to see this. And on the 15th day of the same month, it's talking about the same month, Nisan, so the 15th day. 14th day was Passover, 15th day now. On the 15th day of the same month is the feast 
of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days, this is a long holiday, for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation, and you shall not do any ordinary work. Now, as I said, this is described also in Numbers chapter 28, verses 17 to 25, if you want to look that up. But the point is, this is having to do with unleavened bread. Now, just to make sure everybody is clear on this, what is unleavened bread? That's bread made without yeast. It's that simple. It doesn't have yeast in it. Um, so why would they have a feast or a holiday noting bread made without yeast. What, what has that got to do with anything? It's because, now do a, do a little study here, quick little study sometime, pick up a topical Bible, maybe look up yeast and see different passages in the Bible. You're going to see something fascinating. Yeast, in the Bible, yeast represents evil. It represents mistakes. It represents sin. It represents fault. It represents, as we know it even today in biology, decay. That's basically what it is. When you, do you know that when you put yeast in to a, a dough, what it's doing? It's a living organism. It's a fungi. And it, it reproduces very quickly by the process of budding. Um, and it starts just spreading throughout the entire loaf. And to do this, it needs energy. So what's it doing? It's consuming the sugar. If you put sugar into your dough, it consumes the sugar directly. Uh, if not, it will take the starch that's in the grains, making up that the bread is made of. Um, starch is actually a, um, a, a polysaccharide. It's, in other words, it's many sugars combined. Starch doesn't taste sweet to us because it's a polysaccharide. We, we can taste sweet things as being uh, dye or monosaccharides like glucose and fructose and galactose or even disaccharides as being like... Um, um, sucrose. Those, these are sugars and they're sweet. Starch isn't. Starch is a molecule that's not sweet. But if, and I used to do this when I used to teach school, I used to teach um, biology classes, and I even did this back when I taught elementary school, speaking to them about what enzymes do. Because we have an enzyme in our mouth, our salivary glands make, that's called amylase, salivary amylase. Now, what does amylase, you can always tell an enzyme easily, they always end in the suffix A-S-E. So what does amylase do? It breaks down starch. It breaks down this polysaccharide, many sugars bonded together, which are not sweet, into smaller saccharides, which then start to become sweet. So what I used to do, my students didn't really like this too much, but I would give them ordinary soda crackers, like saltines without the salt, just plain soda crackers, or you could use matzo bread too. Um, but give them plain soda crackers, and I would have all the class, everybody gets one, and I said, now, on the count of three, um, what we're going to do is we're going to put this in our mouth, and we're going to chew it up, but we don't swallow. Nobody swallow. Mix it with your saliva. And as everybody on the count of three, then one, two, three, and everybody puts it in their mouth and they're all chewing. And as they're chewing, I'm sitting making fun of them because I'm not doing it. I've already done this before, but I'm going to talk to them now. And I'm saying, you know, what do you taste? And um, I know they can't talk. I said, just um, just note what you're tasting. And they're like, eh, it doesn't taste. You've all done this. It doesn't taste like anything. It tastes like a soda cracker. But as it went for a little bit, I give them about a minute or so. Yeah. Oh sitting with this powdery gunk in your mouth then because you've, you've masticated, you've broken it up into pieces, mixed it with saliva. But then what happens is the, the salivary amylase breaks down the starch into sugars. And as they're sitting there, now I tell them, my students, I would say, now, I want you to raise your hand when you start to taste something sweet. And after a minute or so, all of a sudden, one hand goes up, and then another hand goes up, then another hand goes up. And eventually, practically the whole class, their hands are up. And I said, that's what an enzyme does. It speeds up reactions. You just took a big molecule and broke it down into small molecules. You did it not by chewing. It was the, the enzyme in the saliva. So yeast does the same thing. It goes into a bread, and it breaks things down. Or yeast also... <laughs> It's sad, but it, it, it can be used also um, to decay things and break things down. Uh, we use yeast in the fermentation process uh, for making certain foods and certain beverages. Matter of fact, 
there's an old, if you're into the Three Stooges, my wife hates the Three Stooges. Um, I, I like the old Three Stooges, the ones with Curly in it. And there's one famous episode that they did um, mocking the Prohibition area, era where they're, they're making beer. And, you know, one, um, they got the recipe and they're making a big batch of beer and one puts yeast in. And then a, a few moments later, like uh, Mo put yeast in and then Larry comes by and puts yeast in. And then Curly comes by and adds a whole pile of yeast. And then they all put the yeast in because they see this thing just foaming. That's a little ridiculous that it wouldn't happen that fast. But it just foams and foams and foams. Because yeast, uh, beer, because what they're making is beer. Beer is actually tea that has got yeast added to it. <laughs> it's a hops tea with yeast added to ferment it to make a small amount of alcohol. And yeast like this will make a small percentage of alcohol. In grapes, you can squish grapes, and there's yeast that goes into this that makes wine. Now, people have often asked me, in ancient times, and I've had people in Israel ask me this, and I've also had people in churches and Sunday schools, and even in my biology classes I used to teach, in ancient time, where did they get the yeast to do this for making wine? It's really simple, the way God designed everything. If you ever look at dark fruit, like plums, blueberries, dark grapes, look at them carefully uh, with your naked eye. Just look at it sometime before popping in your mouth. You're going to see there's a white film on it. What is that white film? Well, in my biology classes, we would take a sterile swab, dip it in sterile water, and then we would rub that uh, all over the fruit. I usually use blueberries for this uh, or grapes, and they would rub this on and then put it on a slide. And we would add a stain to it, and they look at it in our microscope, and voila, they see yeast. That white film that grows on fruit skins, naturally, that's yeast. So when you squish the grapes, it's mixing with the yeast on the skin. That's how it got in there. That's how they used to do it. Today, you, you can buy really specific cultured, pure cultures of fungi to do this. But yeast is used for fermentation. Um, Paul even refers to to this, uh, and that as I said, yeast is symbolic of sin because it spreads so fast. And in First Corinthians chapter five verse six, Paul refers to yeast specifically as being uh, something like sin. It's symbolic of sin because a little bit goes a long way. You put a little bit into something. Boom, you get a lot. We used to make in my AP biology class homemade soda pop, where we would take like grape juice, frozen grape juice concentrate, add that to water. We would make a little over a gallon of this, and we would um, mix that in like a couple of containers of frozen concentrate, put it in there, heat up the water to about 97, 98 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, 37 Celsius, and then we would add yeast to it. And the students would stir it all in. Then we would put it in sterile canning jars, sealed up as tight as we could, and we'd let it sit. And in five days, voila, we have soda pop, grape soda. Fun little lab. We used to do that frequently. What does it? Yeast. A little bit of yeast spreads fast. They reproduce quickly. You can see that. That's why bread rises. It's rising because the yeasts are, are consuming the sugar, and it's making little air pockets of carbon dioxide. That's what bread rises with. That's what yeast does. And it doesn't take much to infiltrate everything. So, for this celebration, since it represents sin, the Jews needed to remove all sins from their homes, for sin will permeate and infect everything. I think everybody will agree with me. Sin has that capability. It ruins everything. It messes up your life, messes up marriages, messes up relationships. It, it can get you in serious legal trouble. It, it can get you in, in all sorts of uh, perils and stuff, and it separates us from God because God's a holy God. Even to this day, in pharmaceutical companies, I have some students that I taught in microbiology that work in pharmaceutical industry. And what their job is, is they will take these vials, sterile vials, and they'll take a random one out and they test it for yeast because yeast spreads so easily. It's a great, great symbol of sin. That's what it is. So sin, uh, yeast represents sin in all of its evil impulses. So God has this special holiday set up with unleavened bread, showing that there's no sin here. It's so interesting that of all the materials God could have chosen he, to represent evil, he chose yeast. I mean, it's perfect. It, it, it's a living organism, and it's, it's so perfect. And what happens, what, does, what's the, what happens with sin in our lives? It leads us to death. Leaven is an organism that leads to decay. It breaks things down. 
It is a major player in decay. Uh, as you walk around, I live in the north woods of Wisconsin. As I walk around throughout the spring, in the summer, in the fall, I see many yeasts, not just mushrooms. People often call them mushrooms, but they're not. Uh, one um, type that fits into this category is actually truffles. Truffles are not mushrooms. Um, or I'm sorry, not truffles. Um, morels. Morels are what I'm talking about. Morels are not truly a mushroom. A morel is more closely related to yeast. It's a sac fungi, um, or if you want the biological term, it's called ascomycota or mas- ascomycetes, having to do with the way it reproduces, but they reproduce like yeast do. And so it's, it's interesting that they're around and they grow everywhere, but the thing is they help decay things. They have to do a decay, and that's what the focus is on this, not just sin, but sins related to death and death related to decay. Death entered the world due to Adam's choice in the Garden of Eden. Um, marriage took place between sin and death at that point. Until that moment, there was no death. Until Adam sinned, there was no pre- there were no predator prey relationships. There were there were no murders. There were no killings. Anything like that. It didn't take place. Everything God said was absolutely perfect, perfect. But when sin entered the picture, sin entered mankind, and as Paul tells us in Romans, it also entered the cosmos and everything. Death starts occurring. Um, and decay starts happening. Yeast um, becomes permanently married as the symbol now of death and decay. As it says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So how does this yeast festival, because that's really what it is, a yeast, a, a lacking yeast festival, how does it pertain to the prophecy of the Messiah? Well, it refers to death. Yeast deals with death. And the Messiah would suffer and die. So this feast is all about the suffering Messiah and his death. But, but, there's the Messiah would see no decay. And that's going to come up again in a prophecy in the book of Psalms. This feast, thus, is a rehearsal for the burial of the Messiah. Remember, this takes place right after... Um, Right after what would have been the crucifixion or Passover, the Messiah is then buried. But because this feast has no yeast, there is no decay. The Messiah is not decayed. This is a very powerful prophecy that the Messiah would not see decay upon his suffering. I want to refer you to a book called The Feasts of the Lord. Excellent book. Very easy to read. It's a, uh, you can get it in hardback. It's not many pages long, probably about maybe, what, 150, maybe 200. It's, it's an easy read. It's a great read. Um, Feast of the Lord. It's by Kevin Howard and Marvin Rosenthal. And this book is all about these feasts that you see and the Messiah. Now, speaking about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Messiah, I'm going to quote a section from this book because it explains it better than I can. Quote, the Messiah fulfilled the feast of the unleavened bread in that he was pure, sinless, without leaven, sacrifice. God validated this by the Messiah's burial in a rich man's tomb. Furthermore, the body of the Messiah was not permitted to decay in a grave like the dough soured by leaven, but was brought forth because he was not a sinner under the curse of death and decay, unquote. You see, in Palestine, during the Roman occupation, hundreds of people were, um, were criminals or they were crucified. Herod did this to many, and the Romans did too. Criminals normally, um, a lot of times, they did not receive a proper burial. But there have been, archaeology has found, that there have been some that were buried in caves and stuff. And a few criminals um, have been, their bones have been uh, discovered with nails from the crucifixion still embedded in them. And uh, But in most cases, the body was taken after the crucifixion and dumped outside Jerusalem in the garbage heap, and there it was burned. Um, even though he was crucified by the Romans, we know that Jesus was placed in the grave, a brand new grave, Joseph of Arimathea's grave, and his body did not see decay because he rose again. That's what this feast is about, which takes us to number 27. Uh, number 27, this this feast here is called the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits. Now, this is going to be, uh, we're going to take it out of Leviticus. Again, we're in chapter 23, but I'm going to read now 9 through 14. 
and it reads like this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I will give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheath before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheath, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until the same day, until you have brought the offering of the Lord your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Now, you may be wondering what this prophecy has to do with the Messiah. It's called the first fruits. It's a term used in the Bible to describe an offering, any type of offering given to the Lord, that the first fruit of anything you ever receive actually belongs to the Lord. God owns everything. Everything belongs to him. All of creation was created from him for him. Now, at times, we get a paycheck or we are given a gift or we are doing something and we get back. We grow crops, we get crops, whatever. You get something. It already belongs to God. But what God is saying, the first fruits of it, of whatever you receive, the first fruits belong to him. And it's to be an offering to him and is dedicated to him. Now, this does not apply simply to this special holiday or to any of the holidays mentioned in Leviticus. It's a principle, actually, that appears several times throughout the Bible that the first of something belongs to the Lord. You'll read it in Nehemiah. You'll read it in um, certain uh, passages in Kings and Chronicles. You read it by some of the prophets. You'll read it also talking about it in the New Testament. Um, but here, we're seeing the first time it's being discussed here, the first fruits belong to the Lord. And like I say, it's mentioned many times. For, give an example in Exodus chapter 13, uh, verses 12 and 13. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. A family is going to get a child. The first that opens up the womb, the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. What this is saying is this, that even in birth, in animals and stuff, whatever, when your animal gives birth to a firstborn, particularly if it's a son, it belongs to the Lord. Now, you can redeem it back. It belongs to the, to the Lord. You have to pay a fee or you have to do a sacrifice. You've got to offer something monetarily. And God in the Torah sets up different ways depending upon the financial situation of the family. This holiday is mostly concerned with the barley harvest, which has just taken place in the springtime. Leviticus describes the setting aside of the first sampling of the barley harvest. By taking this very first sampling and setting it aside to the Lord, it is a step of faith. Now get this. It's a step of faith that the Lord will provide proper weather and harvest for the rest of the year so that the family will not be in want. That's another promise that you get from offering God and giving God the, the first fruits. By giving the Lord the first sampling, not the latter samplings, the first fruit, it's not only an offering of thanksgiving, but a pledge from the Lord that the rest of the harvest will be good and bountiful. So you see, the first fruits is very important to God because the first fruits belong to him. They don't belong to us. I know many people, my, my parents did this, I know, um, and I know many, many people who do this when they get their paycheck. And they, they cash the paycheck. The first thing they take out of it is an offering to the Lord because it's a first fruit. Yes, this is an Old Covenant thing. Um, and in the Old Covenant, this was called a tithe. He would take the tithe out and give it to the Lord. Uh, but even, even though it doesn't appear uh, a command of tithing in the New Covenant or New Testament, it's still something many people do. 
because God owns everything, we're going to give back the first portion to God. Some people will do it right as soon as they get something. They receive some special gift, they take out a portion, this goes back to God before they do anything with it. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you get a paycheck, I remember when when I first started working, I was told this by my dad. When you start working and you get a paycheck, set aside right at the beginning a percentage that God that goes to God. So how do I do that? Well, you you know, I basically give it to church. Um, where I dedicate it to an uh, to a missionary or something. The first fruits belongs to God. And my dad told me, always whenever you get a paycheck, the first part of it. Before you go out, before you go out to a restaurant, before you go out to buy some special item that you're craving, you take that part first and give it to God. So important to do that. And as it says here in the Bible, even those who are uh, inhuman, um, they have their firstborn son. They have to do this. As, as it says also in Numbers chapter three, verse thirteen. For all the firstborn are mine, God says. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, talking about Exodus here, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn of Israel, both man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. When God did the Passover, he killed the animals, the firstborn animals and the firstborn sons. They belong to him. And that's what he took out. And so he says, from now on, firstborn belongs to me. Jesus, if you'll recall, was like this. You see, all firstborn belong to God for a lifelong service. Now, they could be redeemed because you have to pay back. You have, um, there's a ceremony, Pidyon Habin, uh, which means the redemption of son. That's something the Jews, uh, Orthodox Jews and stuff do. Uh, that they, when a firstborn son um, comes into the world, they pay um, something in their synagogue. They give money, and this goes back to all the way back into Exodus, um, to the days of Moses. And according to Numbers chapter 18, 16, families would pay the price um, to the temple or tabernacle of five shekels. That was the price you had to pay. When you had a firstborn son, you paid five shekels. That's That was a sizable amount of money back then. Um, now, sometimes childs were, children were not bought back. Um, Samson was one. He was dedicated for life. Samuel was one, particularly, never, ever um, brought back. Matter of fact, he was given um, to God at the tabernacle after he was um, old enough to survive like that, and uh, he was dedicated for life. Jesus, too, being the firstborn son, was a first fruit. His parents were required to make an offering sacrifice. Now, they were very poor, because we read about this in Luke's gospel uh, with his family at a ceremony in the temple after his birth. We read in Luke chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, as it is written in the law, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And this is for the poor people. It says a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's what Mary and Joseph paid at the temple to buy back Jesus. They're required to do this. Now, they did not have a lot of money. They were poor people. We know this because this is the poor man's sacrifice or the poor man's redemption. Um, redemption of the son was a pair of turtle doves or, or young pigeons because turtle doves uh, and birds like this um, were just a couple of pennies is all it costs. And you just couldn't, if you were very wealthy, you, God wouldn't accept that type of gift. The offering that you paid, if you could, it was five shekels. Um, if you couldn't do that, God had set up a system for those because not everybody is, is really wealthy. It's important to note that this ceremony also, when Jesus was being uh, bought back, re, the redemption of the son ceremony here, Jesus was publicly announced as the Messiah by two witnesses, Simeon, and Anna. Again, that's in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 28. Have you ever wondered why was two, why were, were two people chosen for this? Why was Simeon and why Anna? It has to go back to Jewish law. For a formal declaration, you had to have two legal witnesses. That's why. He is proclaimed to be the Messiah from both of them. Both of them respected people, and um, that 
was an official pronouncement of Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus fulfilled the first fruits. He was the firstborn of Mary, but he was also the first to rise again. Remember, let's go back to this holiday now in our times, not from the first one, but let's go back to our times here um, and how this prophecy fits in. Jesus is the first fruits, meaning we just saw the death, Passover. We've seen he is buried in um, the next holiday we had. And now in this one, we're seeing um, that he is going to be the um, the uh, first to rise again. Um, so he was the firstborn of Mary. He's the first to conquer death the first to rise again, and he would be the first to have a new body. Thus, he's fulfilling the first fruits. Observe what the New Testament writers wrote about this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, Paul understood this and makes the connection. Again, John does this in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where he writes, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Or take a look again. Let's go back to Romans for a minute. How about Romans 8.23? Paul writes, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown eagerly, awaiting, uh, and as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about the first fruits. We Christians will follow Jesus. Jesus was the first fruit, Paul is saying, and we're because of sin's corruption of the whole world, the whole cosmos, we too will be redeemed um, of the Spirit. Even James gets into this. In James chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will he uh, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. You keep seeing this using over and over like that. So Jesus rose again on the day. The first fruits is being celebrated. As all Christians will join him in the resurrection, he was the first. His resurrection proves that not only is he God, but that we too will rise again and join him everlastingly, the first fruits of resurrection. So Jesus fulfills this one. Let's go to number 28, Shavat. Shavat, oh my gosh, this holiday has so many names. It's called the Feast of Weeks. Um, it's called the... Feast of the Harvest, it's called Pentecost, um, a lot of different names for this. But what it is, it's the last of the springtime holidays. Remember, we're basing this on the spiritual calendar, which follows the agricultural system. Um, it also shows a pattern that is developed from the other three holidays. We saw Passover, the death of the suffering Messiah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Messiah's body will not see decay, the first fruits deals with the resurrection. Now we see this spring feast concluding uh, a facet of the suffering Messiah, the last parts of the suffering Messiah. Um, and this is going to be actually the birth of the church. The birth of the church dates back to Pentecost, uh, the first Pentecost after Christ's resurrection. Shavat is recorded in many Old Covenant passages, many times with different names. But as we're examining this, we're going to look at the clues here in Leviticus 23, verses 15 and 16. It reads, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the, of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day of the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So this is 49 days after Passover. Um, and then the 50th day is when it actually is celebrated. So the timing, Pentecost, that's where we get the name Penta, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover is when this is taking place. This was um, the birth of the church, as we see in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is now ascended back into heaven. The disciples were waiting for the Comforter to be given. Jews from all over the world were required, because he's, this holiday was one required Jews from everywhere to go to the temple to celebrate this. So you have people everywhere. And it's, it's described in Numbers chapter 28, verses 26 through 31. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 16, 9 through 12. And we, we can see this getting more details from, from those holidays. But this, this is a joyful holiday. Pentecost or Shavat, uh, Feast of Weeks, Feast of the Harvest. This was a, 
a great holiday, a joyous holiday. What are we celebrating? Why are we so happy? Because of the blessings of God being poured out upon the people. It's, it's at the end of the harvest, the Feast of the Harvest. So because of this, what God has provided for us, he's poured out his blessings on us. We're going to celebrate. That's what this. So there was a lot of food. There was a lot of singing. There was a lot of uh, camaraderie. There was a lot of um, all, all sorts of celebration. People are thrilled and happy and joyful. And as the people rejoiced at what? God's outpouring of blessings. And this signifies the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on his people. To make this prophecy more apparent, let me describe it in this way. It's like in fours. The Old Covenant Pentecost had one. The Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai. Hmm. According to Jewish tradition in their Jewish calendar, the first Pentecost was when, this is after the Passover, they're at Mount Sinai, and this is when God gave the people the law the Ten Commandments. So the Old Covenant Pentecost, on the first Pentecost that they had, the Ten Commandments were given. Number two, it occurs 50 days after Passover. Mm -hmm. Number three, the law of God was written in stone. God writes his law in stone, gives it to Moses. And the fourth point here, if you read the story, 3,000 people die because they were sinning. This is the golden calf thing and everything. 3,000 people die. Now, take that, set that aside, those four points of the Old Covenant Pentecost. Now let's look at Acts chapter 2, the New Covenant Pentecost. One, where in the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments was given. In the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit's given. Two, it occurs 50 days after the resurrection. Three, the law of God was written on the hearts of Christians, on his people, not on stone. God writes the law, but he puts it on the hearts of the people. And the fourth thing, this one's really interesting, there was a revival that happened, if you recall. How many people? 3,000 people were saved. In the first Old Testament covenant, um, we had 3,000 people die. Here we have 3,000 people saved. So this feast, there's four points about this feast. The wheat that is given, the grain that is made for this and and is eaten, it's bread. Wheat represents the Messiah who, how many times does Jesus refer to himself as the bread of life? Second, two loaves made with yeast are used to represent the Jews and Gentiles together. Wait a minute, Michael. You said it has yeast in it. Yes, for this celebration, the loaves have yeast. What's it represent? Jews and Gentiles. The people who came to Pentecost were people full of sin. And this represents the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles later on will be, of course, added into the, uh, into the church, the family of God. But together, they make up the church. The church is going to be com- uh, founded and made up of Jews and Gentiles, the two parts, and you have two loaves of bread. And they do have sin because people do have sin. The third point, In making, when you read all the parts of this thing, you will see something. The wheat is bruised and ground up. It's it's bruised, it's beaten, it's ground up, representing, now as we said, the bread, it's the wheat represents the Messiah. The Messiah will be bruised and ground up. In other words, he will suffer. This is another prophecy showing about the suffering Messiah. And fourth, this feast was a symbol of God's abundant harvest poured out on the people. It represents the blessings of the Messiah and the Holy Spirit being poured out on his followers. Now, as we just wrap this up in conclusion, there are three more feasts, but these other feasts, as I mentioned at the beginning, these have to do with future events with the Messiah. They are the Feast of Trumpets. I'll just mention these. We're not going to go into them. The Feast of Trumpets, uh, called Rosh Hashanah, um, that's going to be the fulfillment and, and represents the rapture, Feast of Trumpets. Remember, the, if you understand in uh, Thessalonians, it talks about the rapture taking place, Paul writes, and about trumpets blowing. Feast of Trumpets with the rapture. Uh, the next one is, the next feast is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. That will be when Jews and Gentiles 
both are totally saved, uh, saved in the end times. That's what that's talking about, the salvation of them, the, the atonement of them. And then the last one of these feasts is the Feast of Tabernacles, or what's called Sukkot, uh, which signifies the eternal reign of the Messiah. And of course, that that is something having to do with eschatology, end time prophecies. So did you follow that? Just in, in wrapping it up, the holiday uh, Passover represents um, Messiah signifies the death on the cross. Feast of unleavened bread, Messiah's signified by the body will not see decay. The feast of first fruits, that's Messiah's resurrection. The feast of weeks, Shavuot, the birth of the church. Those took place. That's part of history. What hasn't taken place, the Feast of Trumpets, the Rapture, Day of Atonement, Salvation, Jew and Gentile both, and the Feast of Tabernacles, the Messiah's reign. So notice they come in two groups. The first four have already happened. The last three we are waiting for. Well, I hope you have enjoyed this and this lesson here today, and a little different, but um, we have finished off the book of Leviticus now. We'll be going into the next lesson in the book of Numbers, but I hope you've enjoyed this and have learned something from this that deepens your relationship of God and and deepens your understanding of the suffering Messiah, because that's who he came. As he comes back, he will not be the suffering Messiah. He'll be the victorious warrior, judge, king Messiah, but he first had to come as the suffering Messiah, and these first four holidays signify that. How cool is that? Well, thank you for joining me, and I hope um, you look at all of the other things that we have available on our website on Evidence for Faith. Um, I so enjoy being able to teach you these things, and whether you're at work, uh, maybe you're riding in a car, maybe um, you just got this on as background or whatever as you're listening, may God bless you and and keep you safe and and just really add um, to your relationship with him as we do this. So until we meet again, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.